Hi everyone, welcome to the second episode of GSA Office Hours. In this episode, Helene and I chat with Mary-Kate Holman, who's a doctoral candidate in the theology department. Um, she's been a graduate student instructor, um, teaching courses such as Faith and Critical Reason, Church and Controversy, and Spiritual Exercises and Culture. And in 2018, Mary Kay actually won the GSA's Excellence in Graduate Teaching Award, which recognizes the significant contributions that grad student instructors make to Fordham's undergraduate education. She's also currently working on the third chapter of her dissertation, which, which is entitled The Signs of Times in, in the Life and Thought of Marie-Dominique Chenu. Um, so in this episode, we cover everything from why Mary-Kate chose to pursue a degree in theology above um, other interests such as English literature and French. Um, we also talk about Mary-Kate's experience teaching undergrad courses like Church and Controversy as a graduate student instructor, her experience in uh, Fordham's Interdisciplinary Jesuit Pedagogy Seminar, and we also talk a lot about her dissertation and different strategies for writing productivity that dissertators can discuss. Okay, so um, here's our conversation with Mary-Kate. We good? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Mary-Kate, thank you for coming on GSA Office Hours. My pleasure. Yeah, okay, so I was doing a little bit of research into your background and all the way back to 2011, oh, wow. and I saw that you were an English major as an undergrad, it's so... true. Yeah, I was right? Yep, that's right. So I guess I'm going to start off the podcast just by asking, why did you decide to pursue theology above English lit? Yeah, so I was actually talking to one of my students in my office hours today about this, so um, I was an English major because I loved literature a lot. Um, And I got interested in studying theology about halfway through my time as an undergrad. Um, It stemmed from just a series of conversations I had with people that interpreted religion in ways that I instinctually thought was wrong but had no vocabulary to... um, to sort of articulate why I thought mm-hmm. that maybe they were wrong. Um, and so I ended up signing up for a few theology classes my junior year of college and became a minor in theology, um, but still really loved English literature. Um, and then I took a year between my undergrad and my master's degree and really couldn't decide. I knew that I'd love to be a professor, but I wasn't sure um, what discipline I would want to teach. I, I was an English major and then minored in both theology and French. And so they were all kind of on the table as options. Um, and then, and if I had done English Lit, I would have written on Charles Dickens because I love him. Um, and so I kind of came to the question, does the world need another book about Charles Dickens or does the world need some Catholic feminists to stand up and say what they think? And so for me, one of the major decisions in um, choosing theology for graduate school was um, that I thought that my talents would be in a smaller pool and probably a pool that needed them a little bit more. Um, but I still still love still love literature and get really envious when my students tell me they're English majors. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you grow up with a religious background, Catholic background? Or? I did, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, both of my parents are Catholic, and um, they met in a singing group in college, like, for church. Um, oh, wow. And, yeah, and and, and all of my, both of them are pretty big, like, seekers. They both um, do a lot of, um, yeah, they do a lot of reading and they do a lot of questioning about Mm -hmm. their faith. And so my, yeah, my Mm -hmm. my issues with religion were never um, because of my parents. Um, They kind of modeled for me what it was like to, um, yeah, to ask questions and to not be afraid of them. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was... I, I always tell my students, like, it's all it's always personal. It's never, like, we're not studying things in a vacuum. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, side note, I was Miss Havisham for <laughs> Halloween last year. Oh, my year. gosh. That must have been the best yeah, costume. Yeah, it was really, yeah, it was fun. I, like, was, like, all white and... But anyways, did you have like a wedding cake and like a sad cobweb? No, I did have cobwebs. Okay. I did not have a wedding cake. Um, I didn't have enough time. Um, but I did have these like kind of like gaudy pearls and like I did like make my hair gray. Um, That's a really good costume. Yeah. That's so literary costumes. Mm-hmm. Um, and last year I was Lady Macbeth. But we're getting sidetracked. Okay. 
So yeah, I think that's really interesting because even I myself sometimes I, I think about like why literature mm-hmm. and what can I teach my students. Um, and I can kind of return back to that after. I think like something that you might probably have thought about too is this like skills-based approach yeah. to different disciplines. Uh-huh. Um, but we can kind of talk about that in a little bit. So you apply for a master's, mm-hmm. right? So I where do. did you go? And then what was that like? Did you learn this vocabulary to kind of, you know? Talk? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I took a year and I just, I actually worked as an administrative assistant at Georgetown. So I didn't go very far. Mm-hmm. Um, partially because I wasn't sure what to do and mm-hmm. being um, close to campus, a place that I was really familiar with seemed like a safe choice. Um But it also was really helpful because when I was an undergrad and I would just say like, I want to get a PhD, so many of my professors would say, do you really, do you really know what it's like to be a professor? You know, a lot of, we hear so much about like shortages on the job market and things like that. Um, And so, you know, they said a lot of people romanticize this life. Maybe you don't know what it's like. Maybe you should figure it out. And so So kind of, and on the, on the one hand I felt offended. I was like, well, you're making it work. You don't think I can. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so when I worked at Georgetown for a year, I was I worked in their classics department, which has nothing to do with what I study except um, I audited Latin, which I thought might be helpful in studying Catholicism. It hasn't really been, but, um, <laughs> but, but now you know Latin. <laughs> I, I don't really even. <laughs> it's a long time ago, but I um, I got to help the chair of that department run a job search for their. Um, for their department at the time. And so I got a sense of what a humanities job search looked like. And I befriended some of the professors and did kind of get to see what their lives were like. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also studied my butt off for the GREs that year since I wasn't in grad school yet. Um, so it was kind of, I took one year of like, it wasn't even really as much of a like career choice as it was like a year to prep for grad school Mm -hmm. before I did grad school. I knew that I wanted to go to grad school and I was debating about what to study. Right. And so I kind of learned during that year that that's mm-hmm. what I um, wanted. Um, yeah, so I applied to a couple of places, and I ended up at Boston College for my master's degree. Um, so I've been at Georgetown, BC, and Fordham, three Jesuit schools. I was going to say all yeah, the Jesuits. I know. <laughs> um, I, I totally making the rounds. Um, and yes, I, I did learn that vocabulary that I was kind of hoping to, but what was interesting there was a core curriculum for the master's degree, but it was really loose and you didn't have to do things in order. Mm-hmm. So I actually found like I would be in some classes where people would be throwing around like names of historical councils or doctrines and I didn't really know what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like one thing that I've learned over the course of like all of this coursework in the master's and the PhD is um, basically you kind of have to fake it until you make it. Like oh, yeah. there I wasn't, all the time. yeah. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't like one intro. Yeah. I wasn't like, here's your introduction to theology. And once you get out of this, then you can have higher level right. conversations. Like I was just, I was in classes with like PhD students. My first semester as a master's yeah, mm-hmm. student. Yeah. And also I feel like everyone does it. Like right. you're not the only one. Like everyone is right. the one that's faking it until they make it. Like, right. And then I realized I was throwing around words that I didn't know what they meant. Probably intimidating other people right, who were like, right. Oh, she knows what that means. Mm-hmm. And I don't. Yeah. Um, but by the time I wrapped up with my master's degree, I felt like I appreciated the fact that it wasn't totally, like, tracked semester by semester, like, building off of different things. Um, I, I just kind of got, like, a survey of things, like, a survey of different topics in theology rather than doing, um, yeah, like, a sort of a, a tiered level of coursework. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what any of those courses were? Just, like, I myself, I've mm-hmm. never taken theology mm-hmm. graduate courses. I'm just very, like, yeah. curious. Well, one that was really striking that wasn't, like, building off of anything else, but was kind of, um, it was in my first semester. I took a class on the female doctors of the Catholic Church. So, one of oh, the, interesting. yeah, one of the designations that, like, the most, like, high-level respected thinkers in the Catholic Church receive is this designation of doctor. And there are many, many men that have that designation. Um, when I signed up for that course, there were three women, but halfway through the semester, they named a fourth. So we studied oh, cool. four women doctors of the church, um, St. Catherine of Siena, Hildegard of Bingen, um, Teresa of Avila, and Therese of Lisieux. And it was kind of an interesting entree into like feminist ideas, but also then historical. We were looking at different time periods, and then also why would contemporary 
Catholics kind of want to honor these figures from the past. Like, it, yep. it was history and theology and literature and spirituality, like, all these different things together. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I didn't have any background to really know what I was talking about, but I feel like I learned a lot in that yeah. class. Mm-hmm. And do you think, so is there any reason to go for a theology master's other than to to pursue a PhD afterwards or like, you know, personal development, like personal. Yeah. So there, the yeah. other big thing is for people that want to go into ministry. Um, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So there were a couple of different degrees offered. I was at a school, Boston College has a separate school called the School of Theology and Ministry. Okay. Um, and they have like a master's in pastoral ministry, one in like pastoral counseling, if you wanted to kind of have like a spiritual and then psychological approach. Um, I did the more like purely academic route, the Masters of Theological Studies. So all the people in that cohort were kind of gunning for PhD programs. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's another degree, the Masters of Divinity, which is a three-year program that combines sort of the rigorous academic study that I did with more pastoral classes. Like mm-hmm. um, there were a lot of priests in training, but then also a lot of um, lay people, both men and women, that kind of wanted to, um, yeah, uh, either minister to people in like campus ministry settings or mm. um work at a parish or something like that so nice. um yeah they have the more like practical skills mm-hmm. based thing which I, I found really interesting it's yeah. kind of envious of sometimes <laughs> yeah cool so kind of circled around this a little bit but how have you kind of reconciled Catholicism with also your interest obviously in like women's role in the church mm. and like feminism <laughs> yeah um, I don't know, could you just maybe just say a little bit more about that and what challenges maybe like women who are Catholics or interested in Catholicism kind of face? Mm, that is like the thesis question of my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, or maybe one one thing about yeah, it. Because well, we I could can, have a whole episode. Sure. Well, and I was going to say, I, I can name some things in my own experience and then also things that I see my students reckoning with. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that most of my students, so they're like, 10 to 12 years younger than me usually, Mm -hmm. um, have kind of landed at the idea that the church is pretty irrelevant because, because they're, they've decided like, Mm -hmm. I'm a woman and I have equal rights to men and there's this institution where I can't be a leader. So they just kind of have written it off. Mm -hmm. Um, and what class do you teach? I've taught three. Um, I teach the intro class, Faith and Critical Reason. Um, I also teach a class called Church and Controversy, which is um, very relevant to this topic. Mm -hmm. And this semester, I'm teaching a class on um, St. Ignatius' spiritual exercises. Um, Yeah, bringing that Jesuit thing kind of Mm -hmm. back in. Um, But yeah, so a lot of my students just see themselves as kind of empowered feminists, and therefore Catholicism is irrelevant. Um, And I see myself as an empowered feminist that really hopes that a lot of things could change about the church um and I see enough like spiritual value and tradition there that I don't want to just let it go and write it off um so I'm I almost see my scholarship and teaching kind of as like a hypothesis that you don't have to write it off Mm -hmm. but I also totally understand and have often been tempted to go the route of many of my students which is to say this is hindering me more than it's helping so (coughs) sorry Mm -hmm. um yeah I mean the fact that women can't be ordained in the catholic church is um sort of just it it embodies a patriarchy every single time that you go and worship celebration or anything like that um and I think that yeah that often makes it challenging for me and I know many of my students are just kind of allergic to that as a result so I kind of see my studies as um, trying to toe a line between being very respectful of a tradition and then also asking what about the tradition um, is there because it has to be there and what are kind of like the cultural trappings that might need to evolve. So, yeah. um, And do you think that there's going to be big sea change within the Catholic Church in our lifetime? Like, do you think that that's a possibility or do you think it's more fitting into... You're, like, finding roles within the church Mm. that um, maybe don't conflict with your feminist leanings. or Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think when I started my master's degree, I was like, it must be that no woman has ever said this before, but I'll Mm -hmm. go say it, and then they'll know. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, basically, much of my studies kind of revealed lots of people have been saying Mm -hmm. the things that I have thought for a long time. Um, So I think that when I started, I thought, top-down change has to happen and, like, we can do it. And I've just seen the ways that 
top-down change is really hard to affect, especially in such a hierarchical institution. Um, and I found that my, I think the healthiest way for me to continue like studying this and like finding it as part of my spiritual life and caring about it is to think much more about what like grassroots right. movements look like. So mm. I don't really know if the Vatican would ever change its rules. I think that so many other things are evolving in the world and in the church mm-hmm. that eventually that might be the case. Um, but I've kind of adjusted my expectations and my hopes to go from being more top down to being more Grass. grassroots. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have similar feelings like towards like the social justice part of mm-hmm. Catholicism that I really relate to, but having like deep seated like issues with how the the church is structured and whether or not it's more beneficial to keep those social justice um, thoughts and like apply them in in a venue outside of the Catholic yeah, Church. Yeah. Um, but I was also raised Catholic, so I do still have an affinity for like those traditions that I grew up with as well. So yeah, I like the idea too of kind of like instilling in students or letting students know, empowering them to like reimagine mm. um, a future that's different than now. You know, <laughs> if they aren't Catholic. Um, or if there are other kind of systematic problems mm-hmm. that are kind of getting to their core. So I think that's kind of like a very smart and empowering way to kind of like frame these conversations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think. So how do you navigate controversial topics yeah. like in the classroom? Uh-huh. Because I myself, I've taught writing composition in text and context. Mm-hmm. But occasionally when I decide which essays I want to assign to students, I think about how am I going to negotiate the diverse perspectives, particularly in core requirement classes where you really do have students who might be religious, might not be religious, of diverse backgrounds. So I guess the question would be, how do you teach controversial topics (laughs) and then also teaching to students of like very diverse backgrounds? That's a great question. And I feel like I've I've learned a lot about that by going through it. Gender actually creates far less controversy in my class than race usually. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, partially because I think that, you know, the typical Fordham core cl- curriculum um, classroom has very diverse gender makeup, but not always a super diverse racial makeup. Mm-hmm. And I, I really want to be attentive to that justice question. Um, in both Church and Controversy and Faith and Critical Reason, we spend a lot of time thinking about race and how that impacts faith questions and justice questions. Um, and the first semester that I taught it, I kind of bumbled my way through it. Like, mm-hmm. I guess the fact that it was even on my syllabus suggested, like, this is an issue that I care about. Um, but I don't think I had the classroom management skills to totally um, <laughs> make it both a safe space, right. but then also a space where we can actually have genuine conversation mm-hmm. and I'm not just virtue signaling. Um, so I kind of regret the way, I don't even remember specifically how I handled it, but I remember coming out of the first semester I ever taught that thinking like, I I probably let some very opinionated, very entitled students kind of say too much without managing. Um, I have found that the, a lot of times by making myself vulnerable as the teacher, I can shield a lot of my students from being vulnerable. So, um, every other semester that I've taught about race we do one day on just what is racism and I assigned an article written by a professor in our department Brian Massingale um who describes the ways that it's cultural the ways that it's historical the way that government policies have exactly institutional exactly um and Brian Massingale is black and writes at the very end of this chapter about the ways that U.S. government policies have adversely affected his family and their accumulation of wealth, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I realized that, like, the only way to prevent white students from getting defensive was for me to implicate myself in it, too. So we read that, and then I open class by then sharing some of my family background, the way that I have immigrant ancestors who then were able to go to college on the GI Bill, that were able to get home equity, that then sent their kids to college debt-free and that kind of thing. Um... And I realized that once I implicate myself in that story, like, my white students aren't going to argue with me because I, I'm implicating all of us in it. And then my students of color are more likely, I think, to 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 not feel like they've got to defend the author. Like, that, right. that I'm defending the author. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah. So with a lot of, with a lot of issues, I, I try to like even share the ways that I don't want to put this share the first time I encountered an idea. Like for example, when I, when we talk about feminism, I ask my students like, um, how many of you have heard your friends identify as feminists before? And every hand goes up in the classroom. And I say, I think this is a pretty recent phenomenon. Like yeah, when I was in college, absolutely. even right 10 years ago, like that's shocking to me. Mm-hmm, yeah. When I was in college 10 years ago, I think my senior year, I had a friend that was a fellow at the women's center. And that was right. the first time that I heard like feminism as something that was like, Oh, we should all do this. Um, and so, yeah, like I'll explain the first time I encountered an idea, which I think helps my students to think like, oh, this isn't so scary or like this isn't threatening or you're not forcing this on me. Um, yeah. So it's scary to be vulnerable as a professor because then you're like, what if this all goes south? Um, but I've actually found that it's almost like a sneaky classroom management Mm -hmm. tactic where like by making yourself vulnerable, they actually tend to respond pretty well. Yeah, I I definitely agree Mm -hmm. with that. And it's like the more that you can make it relatable to them Mm -hmm. rather than this like academic subject that they have to learn or memorize. Right. And you can actually like engage the students in an inclusive manner like rather than an intimidating one. I think that's just like so much more helpful and beneficial to the classroom. Yeah. And not to like redirect the question away from me, but I am curious like in literature and in economics, do you have to do similar things? Well, I was thinking, um, I've taught more composition courses Mm -hmm. and, um, my first semester teaching comp, I sort of inherited a syllabus and a set of essays that were used by uh, previous instructors, but then when I had the chance um, my second semester to teach to construct my own syllabus Mm -hmm. from the get-go, I actually gave my students a questionnaire on the first day, and a few of the questions were related to, like, what are your hobbies, what's your favorite TV show, and so I kind of reviewed all of their answers, and then I specifically chose essays that were aligned with their interests, because like with composition you're teaching them to write you know clear sentences um fully developed body paragraphs and argumentative essays Mm. over the course of the semester and you can do that really with a wide variety of topics so oftentimes I would choose different essays and maybe different youtube clips that I'd use in the classroom um teaching the same sort of concepts whether it's like active versus passive voice Mm -hmm. or transitions between sentences so that was one um tip I picked up on and then also in terms of just kind of humanizing yourself (laughs) like for sure (laughs) there are some days where I walk in and I'm just like I am so tired today or like I just you know or in the middle of a class Mm -hmm. like I'll kind of share an anecdote like I'll just be like oh guys my mom called me this morning (laughs) right and I feel like humanizing yourself everyone's like oh she's tired too okay Mm -hmm. and then you do it together so I I have also found and in my own teaching I kind of adopt that approach in like maybe a different way but Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. mine is less um controversy surrounding race and gender Mm -hmm. more controversy surrounding um, economics being tied into political leanings. Yeah. So, um, you know, you don't get as much into it with the intro courses. It's more, um, you know, just like the big, big topic. I don't even know, but I always try no matter what economic policy that I'm teaching to show the both sides of it. Yeah. Like, and, and again, like use the examples, make it relatable. Like, yeah, sure. In theory, this sounds great. And in theory, if it worked perfectly in the real world, this would be the best thing to do. But what we do see and the evidence shows is that this is actually what happens. Uh-huh. Free trade is great until the gains from trade are <laughs> distributed like poorly among the winners and the losers uh-huh. from trade. You know, things like that. And then it tends to, if it provokes any conversation at 8.30 in the morning, which <laughs> often it doesn't. <laughs> but if it does, then it's coming from like a more informed perspective and more in the middle of we recognize the the benefits and and costs to both sides and both types of policies and it's more of an informed discussion rather than like oh I'm a conservative so I think this or I'm a liberal and progressive so I think this and so yeah but at 8 30 in the morning there's only so much that they want to say at all yeah yeah that's really interesting Mm -hmm. um to go back to Alex's point about humanizing people like have I feel like I do that a lot more now. And when I first started teaching, I was really afraid that as a woman, I, and like, as I was, I guess when I started teaching, I was 26. 
I, I was like, I'm like just a couple years older than my students. Mm-hmm. Um, I would try very hard to sort of be an authority figure that like did not humanize myself. And like, I remember even like I spoke with a much more authoritative tone and I'm like, guys, let's talk about Ignatius, you know? Um, have you guys it's ever worried so about that? True. Yeah. Right? Yes. Well, I have a funny story. Um, I think it was my second year of teaching. It was the fall semester. It was the day before I was teaching um, my first class. I was meeting my my new comp two students, mm-hmm. and I was in the elevator. And there was this um, very like what like bright eyed um, like student, and he was taller than me. And he like looks at me and he goes, "Oh my gosh, are are you a junior?" <laughs> and I was just like, "Oh no, you know I'm a PhD student." Um, and he's like, "Oh okay," like so we're talking, and, and then he leaves. Um, and then, like, the next day, he's actually sitting in the front row <laughs> oh of my, my class. <laughs> and he looks up at me. So funny. And he actually ended up transferring out, but okay. he, like, sent me a very nice email that was just, like, you know, my courses got changed. Um, so oh, my gosh. I That's especially so feel that occasionally um, different students will think I'm an undergrad. Me so when too. I walk in the room, and I tend to just wear jeans, and I definitely have a more casual approach. But for some reason, I never felt that need to be authoritative. Mm-hmm. I, like, I found, like, That's so interesting. focusing on the material. Yeah. Like, before I walk into a classroom, I always think, what is the intention for today's class? It, it, it's to teach this kind of mm. um, concept. And I try to actually, like, completely decenter myself. Mm. And I really focus on the material. Okay. And as someone who can be kind of um, neurotic <laughs> about preparation and things, I found that to be, like, a strategy that worked really well and like have my notes if I need it but I just come in and like almost just kind of decenter myself yeah. but I do think that in each semester it takes the students about two weeks to mm-hmm. kind of adjust mm-hmm. to being taught by someone very young a woman because mm-hmm. um, they have this idea that you know freshman year the professor is going to be mm-hmm. um like a 60 year old bearded man with a pipe or <laughs> and suit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah so but yeah that's so interesting yeah so for me my first time teaching um I walked into the classroom and I'm like always you know running from place to place and again it was 8 30 mm-hmm. in the morning and I was just a little disheveled I had ridden my bike to campus and I had this big backpack so I come into the classroom <laughs> with this big backpack and a helmet attached to my my uh strap and then I like go to the front of the classroom and most of them were there already go to the front of the classroom to like drop off my stuff yeah. and everyone like was looking at me like what is this student doing? Like, You're she so just sit down. Yeah. And then I, like, started, I was like, oh, hi, I'm, you know, Miss Purcell, or whatever. And they were like, wait, what? That's what? so funny. But then I always was so nervous about not being taken seriously, mm-hmm. especially after that first thing, that, like, I became very authoritative, authoritative just in my first two classes of being like, I will not... Uh, be okay if you if I see you on your cell phone. I will yep. take the cell phone away. <laughs> like I am not okay with cheating. Like yep. all of this stuff, and I'd be like very authoritative. And then over the semester, I would kind of devolve mm-hmm. into my own casual, talkative self. Yeah. Self, and it as kind long, of worked in that. As long as the students are learning something, mm-hmm. they will, you know, respect the professor mm-hmm. and like really pick up on it. Yeah. Okay. So, um, anything else in regards to teaching? You know, if there's maybe grad students who are transitioning from coursework into teaching for Mm -hmm. like the first time maybe just like one bit of advice like before they walk into the classroom for the first time and they're like looking at the semester at large I was both really really excited to teach and then also just felt like such an imposter because I yeah I was like and everybody kept saying to me like you know more than them and so like, I had to keep reminding myself of that. Whenever they would ask a, a hard question to remember, like, I, I know more than them. I might not know everything, but I know more than them. Um, my teaching mentor, uh, Bob Davis, who's a really wonderful um, professor in our department, the first time he observed me teaching, he was so nice and he was overly complimentary, I think, to make me feel better. And the one piece of advice he gave was, you don't have to answer every question that they yeah. ask you. Like, he was like... If they ask you, like, why did Martin Luther King Jr. do this? You can say, well, what does everybody else think? Like, why would he do this? You know, you mm-hmm. you don't have to, like, panic and then give your best attempt at an answer. Um, so that was a really helpful reminder that, like, we're more of an expert than really any undergrad would be. Um, 
and that it's okay not to know, and it's okay to turn hard questions into discussion questions, and it's also okay. I started just saying like, I don't know, you know, yeah, and like or, I'll yeah, have to look question. at that. I'll yeah, look yeah, at yeah. That, look that up and bring it. Yeah. Or like, hmm, you know, like that actually sounds like something we could find very quickly on Wikipedia, but I don't know off the top of my head, mm-hmm. you know. Right. Like someone, asked, one of my students asked me the other day. I was giving a a rundown again. It's I'm, we're the class I'm teaching now is on Ignatius's spiritual exercises and their contemporary applications, but we've been doing some history of St. Ignatius who lived in the 16th century. Um, so I'm, I, you know, I looked up enough to know, uh, even my, my research expertise is in the 20th century, but I figured out enough to be able to give some context. And a student raised her hand, she said, what was going on with the British monarchy at this time? And I, I had no idea. I mean, I, 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 I vaguely knew like, okay, this is around the time of the Reformation. Right. I think Henry VIII is about to come on the scene. So I kind of gave my best stab at it and was like, you know, that's that's really not my level of expertise. Like, let's look at Wikipedia after class and figure this out. Um, But if that had been my first semester, that would have wrecked me. And it turns out that it doesn't matter at all. And they still respect you when you don't know the answer. Yeah, totally. I Mm -hmm. said, I don't know so many times. Me too. I have Um, to. But it is like the most intimidating thing going into your first time teaching of what if they know more than me or they ask really hard questions. And mm -hmm. I just remember being so scared and then like two classes in and I was like, they know nothing. All right, so I kind of want to hear a little bit more about your own research, mm-hmm. but could you just say a little bit more about spiritual exercises? Like, sure. what, what are you teaching? So, um, the founder of the Jesuits, Ignatius of Loyola, um, was a really apt, like, psychologist before psychology was a thing, um, and developed over the course of his own life and life experience, um, this series of, uh, they're literally called spiritual exercises. It's this um, program of prayer and meditation and like life discernment that unfolds over four weeks if you do it on, in like a full on retreat. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's the foundation of the spirituality of the Jesuit order. And then also um, anybody that really has like an affiliation for Ignatius. Um, again, I've gone to three Jesuit schools, so this has kind of always been my mm-hmm. language for understanding. Um, spirituality. So I'm teaching a class that uses that 16th century text of exercises, um, but then also um, looks at a lot of contemporary interpretations. Um, We ask a lot of questions about translation and adaptation across centuries because um, there are some things that are sort of taken for granted in a 16th century Catholic man's worldview that are not taken for granted (laughs) in the 21st century. we look at the ways that um, Buddhists have adapted this kind mm-hmm. of program to fit in or to mirror Zen meditation. Um, yeah, so it's called spiritual exercises and culture because it looks at a lot of cultural instantiations of this sort mm. of ancient, not ancient. Um, this, yeah, it's really fun. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having a great time. Yeah. yeah, especially because spirituality, at least this version of spirituality, is all about like taking stock of your own life and like reflecting on your life and what choices you want to make. And so it it's not like I'm talking about abstract, like, Trinitarian doctrine. Right. I'm like, wh- what do you think? Like, yeah, what is our purpose? Right. Like- and, like, is this description of, be like, feeling consolation or desolation? They're two words that Ignatius uses. Um, even if you're not religious, like, have you had an experience where you really do feel, like, at peace and, like, mm-hmm. one with the world and calm and, like, everything's going right and, like... Insane, yeah. Right. And then they're like, oh, yeah. You know, so, yeah, it's really... It's fun. It's really yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah, that sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Cool. And um, am I right that you took the uh, Jesuit pedagogy seminar? Yeah. Can you did. tell us like a little bit about that? Because I'm thinking about applying once sure. I'm back into teaching, but yeah. Um, so it's it's someone that has a big like ten year like body of experience mm-hmm. with um, with Jesuit pedagogy, just having been a student of mm-hmm. uh, Jesuit institutions for so long. I found it really interesting to kind of more consciously reflect on what principles of um, yeah Jesuit education and Jesuit spirituality are um, yeah like how you would go about bringing that about in the classroom. I mean, it, what's really interesting is that it's an interdisciplinary seminar. So it was me and one other theology graduate student, and it's a theology graduate student whose work is in like ancient stuff. He's not even dealing with contemporary Catholicism. Um, and then people from the English department, the bio department, um, history, etc. And all of us were thinking about, like, how you'd bring some of these principles into your class. Um, it's, 
it's a really good experience. Um, there's money attached to it, which I think is also really great. Um, plug for, you know, get, uh, sort of adding to your stipend a little bit. Um, yeah. And so you apply, do you recall, was it spring or fall semester? You apply in the fall and it happens in the spring. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And yeah. how often did you meet with your group? I believe there were six sessions. Okay. Um, yeah. One thing that's both really interesting and also a challenge of the Jesuit Pedagogy Seminar is that it's run by three professors. Um, and all of them have really interesting ideas. Um, and you could tell that they're all so excited and they have really complementary um, pedagogical approaches and everything, but it was very hard in every given session to like get to all the material that mm-hmm. we wanted to get to. Each um, graduate student was supposed to present once over the course of the semester, but it, we did find that if you presented first in the class session, you'd get a significant more amount of time than the person squeezed in at the end, right. which really just is a testament to like how much interesting material there is to discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I found that the moments where we graduate students had like interdisciplinary conversations about best practices were my favorite moments in those classes, yeah. like kind of the organic community building moments where you find out that someone teaching comp or even someone teaching like a bio lab might have interesting ideas for your theology class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. And does it um, end with a final presentation mm-hmm. and that any graduate student can attend, right? Yep, that's right. Um, yeah, so it's at the end of the spring semester, each graduate student, it's like a, it's like hours long symposium. So a lot of times people will pop in to watch their friend's presentation and then leave. Um, they usually bring in a keynote speaker from some Jesuit university or who is a scholar of some element of Jesuit history or something. Um, and then each student gives a presentation about a practice they applied over the course of the semester in their own class. Um, yeah, it was really, again, I, I learned a whole lot. A lot of us did very similar thing. Like we all picked up on one really strong strain of, um, this idea of composition of place. Ignatius is really big on imagination. So a lot of us were like, I incorporated imagination into the classroom. <laughs> it was interesting to see like how the biologist does imagination right. versus the theologian. And yeah. What do you mean by imagination exactly? Um, so at the beginning of each of the exercises, Ignatius kind of paints a picture with words and invites you to use your own imagination to enter into that scene to kind of set up, um, set up the rest of the meditation. Like a lot of times you'll like read a passage from a gospel and you'll like, like, for example, the nativity meditation, you're thinking about the night that baby Jesus is born and you're imagining like Ignatius calls it a cave, which is funny because most of us would think of it as a stable, but you think of like this dirty place and like this like poor mother and where you would be in the scene and like, Mm -hmm. would you be helping? And you know, so, you know, I think the bio, if I remember correctly, the biologist was like, I had my students imagine, like, that they were part of this cell and, like, why they would do this thing that, you know, this part of the cell does and, like, you know, mm-hmm. like, totally not related to spirituality, but, like, the, the this notion of, like, putting yourself in the scene. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. So, like, if I started this podcast over again, <laughs> I would say, Helene... Imagine we are. Yeah. Helene, Mary-Kate, and I are in Keating Basement, <laughs> 18. We are all sipping on Starbucks mm-hmm. latte pumpkin coffee mm-hmm. and a cappuccino <laughs> and yeah no I think that's interesting because it kind of like where are you in the scene yeah where are you in the scene you're you <laughs> drawing on the white dear board. listener yeah <laughs> um but I think things that are cool about it is it like it really invites the student to be like really a part of this mm-hmm. conversation immediately but yeah. also appeals to kind of like visual senses like I think sometimes academic work can feel a bit abstract, so I don't, yeah. yeah, I don't know how I would apply that in comp, mm-hmm. but it's interesting to think about. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's fun. Um, okay, so, so we have teaching, mm-hmm. but when most people think of a PhD, <laughs> they usually think about research. They mm-hmm. do. Um, <laughs> and so, how's your dissertation going? The worst question ever. I choked on my cappuccino at that exact moment, but I, I actually... It's going pretty well. Um, You're on the job market this year. I am on the job market this year. Um, So my dissertation, I originally proposed it as five chapters. Um, I'm writing on this um, French theologian. He was a priest, and his life spanned basically the entirety of the 20th century, um, 1895 to 1990. Um, So he's a really interesting figure for 
tracing developments in yeah. the Catholic Church because he lived through so many of them. Um, he was a historian, a theologian, and a social activist. He got condemned twice by the Vatican. So um, each chapter of my dissertation looks at sort of a different phase of his life and the creative new ways he was thinking, um, ways that he was um, envisioning a church that was engaged with the modern world, that was um, advocating for the poor, that, you know, all these mm-hmm. interesting... Each each chapter is a different instantiation of this. So it's kind of half history, half theology. Um, I proposed it as five chapters and quickly realized that there were really only four um, life phases worth noting. Um, so my conclusion is going to be kind of a hefty, long, <laughs> not quite fifth chapter. Um, yeah, it took me about a year to write the first chapter and about a year to write the second chapter, but the third chapter is going way faster and I can tell the fourth one is also going to, um, is going to go more quickly. Um, I think this is true of most people, but I'll just speak for myself. Writing a dissertation is such a learning experience. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, I mean, I'm going to have to go back and revise my first two chapters because I felt like a lot of the things that I wrote in those first couple of drafts, I was kind of performing that I knew the history of not just this person, but then like everything that was going on in Paris and everything that was going on in the Catholic church over the course of these years. Um, I almost had this like imaginary critic over my shoulder being like, I guess you don't know what happened at the first Vatican council. Mm -hmm. And so I'd be like, need to add a paragraph to prove to this imaginary critic that I know. Um, And I'm starting to realize now that I'm rolling, like my, if I make this into a book, my readers don't care that I perform my knowledge. Right, right. Like, they want what's new and interesting and right. my own sort of story. And your take, um, yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask, too. Yeah. I mean, footnotes are our best friend, yeah. first of all. Right. <laughs> and the second part is, like, I think this is so awesome that you're almost, like, taking this biographical approach, mm-hmm. too, in which you're kind of centering a discussion of an era um, around, like, one person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to say that's really Thanks. cool and something you don't necessarily hear a lot mm. about with dissertations. Like specifically in the English department, we're often encouraged to um, construct our chapters around different authors yeah. as well as different genres mm-hmm. to demonstrate our ability to teach um, literature like oh. in like a survey class. Uh-huh. So at least in the English department, that's what we're encouraged to yeah. do. Um, but I can see how this type of project would be really exciting. Mm -hmm. I like that. Um, And then my follow-up question was going to be, do you have, like, an argument of the dissertation Mm -hmm. yet? Or have you went, like, have you landed upon the argument? Like, I don't know. Finding (laughs) the argument is so fascinating to me. I love it. It's so hard. Yeah. I think, yeah. So when I proposed my dissertation, which I don't know what the proposal looks like for you guys, but it seems so odd for me that you kind of write a proposal, at least in the theology department, with some some background research, but you haven't read all the books that you say you're going to read, and so you're like, this is what I'll argue, and then you're like, if I can find the evidence. Um, so my initial argument that I proposed was pretty, um, I don't want to say superficial, but it was pretty basic. I basically said, um, the, the, the guy I'm writing on, his name is Chanu, and I said um, something to the effect of Chanu's thought especially his vision of church, um, developed with each new, um, like, career that he took on or geographical location that he landed on. Um, And I basically just said, like, it continued to expand further and further over the course of his life. Which makes sense Mm -hmm. um, in how you're structuring your chapters. I'm also really interested in book structure and, like, how different chapters build on yeah, each other. Like, yeah. I love that. But. Yeah. So, so you're, originally you, I just said it was expanding, and now I'm starting to see, well, specifically how did it expand. So I I think I can now make a more solid argument that, I mean, actually similar to what I was talking about before, I think Chanu started to realize that theology that was sort of top-down, handed down, like, doctrines and propositions, wasn't landing with, like, the Parisian working class, for example, that had basically totally abandoned religious practice or, you know... Um, he got more interested in kind of like grassroots uh, social change movements after the um, riots in Paris in 1968 and things like that. So I'm starting to realize in my research that he was always uncomfortable with the top-down deductive method of theology. And I'm now seeing that his method 
became increasingly inductive until at the end of his life he explicitly advocated for an inductive method of theology, mm-hmm. which is basically basing the- theological claims on experience rather okay. than imposing mm-hmm. sort of external ideas onto our experience. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, it took me t- two years from the proposal approval to come up with that, but here we are. So mm-hmm. it takes a lot of time. I know it does. Yeah. How um, do you approach your research and writing prop, like, um, in terms of productivity Mm -hmm. and kind of like, what does, I guess, what does an average day for you look like when you're trying to balance Mm -hmm. researching and teaching? It's like, we, uh, Helene and I recently went to the GSAS Futures Time Management Mm -hmm. talk with Dr. Michelle Thompson. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've been talking a lot about different strategies for time management and you know, particularly a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. around the dissertation too, and that it's like so representative of why we're here. Right. Um, yeah, I have tried a lot of things that have sort of worked, but didn't work well enough for me to keep doing them. Like I, this is also, I don't think there's one system that works for everybody. Right now, what has been working for me is tracking hours that I work on my dissertation instead of word count because for one of the big reasons why chapters one and two took so long for me is because I was panicked about word count so I would start writing only to realize that I hadn't done enough research to support my claims and mm. then was kind of backtracking and padding things and it was taking way longer and then there would be days where I would read and I'd be like I didn't do anything today but I really had um so I was talking with a good friend of mine in the department about this was maybe like a year ago about this like challenge of feeling productive and I said you know what I really need so sometimes I run and I I love the app map my run and I was like sometimes I just love looking at like a calendar view of the month and seeing how many days I ran and how many miles over the course of this yeah and I was just like it makes me feel like I'm you know wow I didn't even realize I was such a good runner Mm -hmm. um and he was like make yourself a spreadsheet where you keep track of your hours and your word count it's like your miles and your your hours and I was like that seems so obvious um, so, yeah, so I do keep track in an Excel sheet that then I'll like occasionally compare with mm-hmm. other people just for like accountability. Um, I've, I do that too, to some you? extent. And I'm also a runner and I have a running log uh-huh. and I 100% agree yeah. that it's a great way to, for me, it's. It's like, okay, I did four or five hours of research today, and it's okay to move on to something yep, else. Yep, exactly. Because you can't work, you know, eight to ten hours a day, and you need rest <laughs> yep. from it. And so, yeah. I don't know if it's more, for me, it's not necessarily the feeling of productivity, but the feeling like it's okay to take a break, yeah. or it's okay to work on something else. Well, and it's funny, because you mentioned earlier that you're a perfectionist, and I'm totally not. So for you, it's like, you need permission to take a break, and for me, I'm like, I, I need to motivate myself <laughs> to somehow do this. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah. I And I think I used to think I was like a bad PhD student, and now I'm really- I still like, think that I'm a yeah, bad PhD student. <laughs> we all like, right, everybody struggles with these kinds of things. The other thing that I've started doing, um, I, like, I think you mentioned this, I don't remember if it was before or after we started recording, Alex, but um, that when you're teaching, on teaching days, like, you can't write before you teach. And it's the same for me. Um, so I've requested morning teaching assignments. Um, awesome. And then I've decided that on teaching days, I'll prep for the next class rather than trying to write. And then I have one day which a lot of times is meetings. Wednesdays are generally meetings. And then Tuesday and Friday are the days that I don't teach. And so I have, like, I just put on my calendar, finally. I used to not do this. But I just put protected writing time. And I just, like, people say, like, can you meet? I'm like, not on those days. Because I used to, especially when you... That's a great way to do it. Well, and especially, mm-hmm. like, when you're in coursework, you can see on your calendar, like, where, like, all the time is blocked off. And then when I transitioned out of coursework, you know, I had... A lot of friends in New York that would also be like, oh, you're the one that doesn't have a structured schedule. Yes. So, like, one of my friends was like, I got tickets to a recording of The View next week. Do you want to go? And right. I'm like, and it's I'm so not easy. doing anything else at 11 a.m. Exactly. You know, and it's like, no, what I should be doing at 11 a.m. is writing. Yeah. Um, so, maybe it's because I, I really have this goal of finishing this year, but I finally was like, you've got to actually, like, on the calendar protect mm-hmm. your writing time. So, that's, that is another approach that I do now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And I've noticed a huge 
difference in terms of like my attitude towards my writing Mm -hmm. too and like another strategy I've learned is to stop in the middle of something Mm. so like when you stop working (laughs) on it for a day you either stop in the middle of a paragraph or like in the middle of an article Mm -hmm. and then it's easier to start up the next day because you're like oh I have to finish yeah and so that's another tip that I've picked up that I really I really like I like that yeah yeah I I tend to more do like four hours five days a week if I have if I have like really large writing blocks I get intimidated Mm -hmm. and so I try to like also schedule it in but I've noticed for me having um kind of a string of days in a row with about four hours tends to work like really well yeah um we're running a little bit short on time yeah I'm trying to think if there's anything else I would say like just generally you know how many years have you been here? Six. This is my sixth year. Sixth yes. year. <laughs> so you had lots of experience on Fordham's campus mm-hmm. as a graduate student. Like, what is, what are the the things that you would, like, want to remind new grad students of, or yeah, just grad students in general. So my favorite thing about Fordham is actually not even on Fordham's campus, but we get into the New York Botanical Gardens right across the street yep. for free with our Fordham ID and. Um, I like to go running there, yeah, but I also love to go walking there, and I've actually graded papers there before. I just, I find it to be a really amazing resource, like, especially being in the Bronx, which can be very crowded and busy, mm-hmm. uh, like, we just have this amazing nature preserve right across the street, and yeah. for the first two years that I was here, I had no idea, and I never went there, and now, like, mm-hmm. I go there all the time, and I find it very relaxing, so mm-hmm. that's my... My big pro tip, go. I, my undergrad's called the Botans, and I don't know if I'm being like cool or like really nerdy and calling them like go to the Botans. Yeah. <laughs> All right, awesome. Well, thank you so much. I think that everyone will get like be really interested in all your research and teaching yeah. tips especially so. like the fact that it's surrounding St. Ignatius and like your teaching is around St. Ignatius <laughs> I and mean, everything right poster child for yeah. Jesuit yeah. education yes exactly, exactly. <laughs> all right thank well, thanks you. guys thank so you. fun mm-hmm. all right everyone that's a wrap on the second episode of GSA office hours thank you everyone for listening um In our show notes, I'm also going to um, provide links for an essay that Mary-Kate wrote on her experience um, teaching church and controversy, actually. It's awesome. Um, She speaks a bit more in depth about particular students and situations that really impacted her in that class. And I'm also going to include a link um, to a recording that... um, Mary Kate posted with Catholic Women Preach. Um, And in this recording, uh, she reflects on how the risen Christ sets us free from past faults and failings for the work of the gospel. And I think it's awesome to hear such a, you know, honest and relatable perspective about, um, you know, teaching social justice within the context um, of the academic classroom. And it was just great to hear her, you know, speak in such a committed way and really inspire students to think critically and ethically at the same time. But all right. Thanks for listening.